You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip-syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to another episode of the Family Gamers Podcast. This is episode 350. 350. It's crazy. This is a big number. We actually have a, a big announcement on this show. Mm-hmm. We've got so much to do. We've got a topic that we've solicited feedback from the Family Gamers community and all over the place. There's so much, so much. we got to get right to it. So, hello, everybody. We are the Family Gamers. As always, I'm your host, Andrew, and I am joined by my lovely, wonderful, and incredible <laughs> wife, Anitra. That's me. Oh, my goodness. This show, I've been looking forward to this show for probably a month. So I'm really excited that we're actually here. So I'll just get started right away going over our fact. Anitra, this is a 350 fact. Obviously, do you know who D'Artagnan is? D'Artagnan. D'Artagnan. Excuse me. I know Spanish and a little bit of German. I don't know French. (laughs) You don't know how to say French names. I don't know how to say French names. Uh, D'Artagnan. D'Artagnan. Yeah, he was one of the three musketeers in the book, The Three Musketeers. So arguably the greatest... Of the Three Musketeers, one might say? Uh, Arguably. Arguably, yeah. yeah. Well, so D'Artagnan is a real person. It wasn't just this story, this legend of- Made up character. The Three Musketeers. So let me just read this whole little news piece that I have. This was published back in January, but it pertains to this year. One of the most anticipated films of the year, The Three Musketeers, D'Artagnan, is released on Wednesday, April 5th at the cinema. This is a new adaptation from the work of Alexander Dumas. Head to Lupiak. The village where the real hero who inspired the writer for his saga was born. The girl's countryside with its spectacular views of the Pyrenees is home to the birthplace of a character from the novel, D'Artagnan, immortalized by Alexandre Dumas. In this old manner, the castle of Castlemore would have been born the man at the origin of the myth, a long misunderstood musketeer even on his lands. Historian Jacques Laparte, also president of the Archaeological Society of Gares, goes to the only room in the castle dating from the time of D'Artagnan, the kitchen. He spent his childhood there with his three brothers. His destiny is traced. He will be a soldier, a musketeer. The real D'Artagnan is a captain of the musketeers who died in combat in 1673, 350 years ago. And 30 years after he died... The Three Musketeers was published. Mm -hmm. So there you go. An original copy of the book is actually kept in a small museum in Lupiak, in case you ever want to go see it. But that's my fact about the episode. 350 years ago, the real D'Artagnan died. I did not know D'Artagnan was a a real person. So that's very cool. I'm just going to keep saying (laughs) (laughs) D'Artagnan. Well, I'm going to talk about a message from our sponsor. As a reminder, First Move is letting us know how they would work with a young family earning a combined $100,000 a year with a net worth of about $25,000 and the goal of buying a home in the next few years. Continuing with the student loan example from last week, depending on the paydown strategy, we may need to start saving for an eventual tax bomb. Because if you have loans forgiven in the U.S., that counts as taxable income. This has been specifically changed to not include student loans that are forgiven before the end of 2025, but if this example client is in a forgiveness program and won't be meeting the number of payments required in that time, 
they'll want to have money saved up to pay the taxes on that possible forgiveness down the road. So if you've got a financial question that you'd like the answer to, head over to firstmovefinancial.com slash familygamers to see how the team at First Move Financial can help answer your questions today. Thanks again to First Move Financial for sponsoring the podcast. All right, Andrew, let's go right on into what we've been playing recently. Sure, let's do that. So I spent some time at a friend's house last night and I played a game that I had never played before. There's a two-player game called Mandala. Are you familiar with this? Uh, no. Yeah. So this is a game from Lookout Spiel. It's one of those boxes. It's like um, Agricola, all creatures big and small. It's that square size box. You know what I mean? Oh, sure, sure, sure. So this is a really interesting game. It has a cloth player board and square cards. And all of the cards are these six different colored mandalas, basically. So... Mandala, this game's been out for a little while. It's kind of a hard game to describe, so I'm just going to read to you basically what BGG says. In the two-player game Mandala, you are trying to score more than your opponent by collecting valuable cards, but you won't know which cards are valuable until well into the game. Over the course of the game, players play their colored cards into the two mandalas on the board, building the central shared mountains and laying cards into their own fields. As soon as a mandala has all six colors in the mountain and in the fields, the players take turns choosing the colors in the mountain and adding those cards to their river and their cup. At the end of the game, the cards in your cup are worth points based on the position of their colors in that player's river. The player whose cup is worth more wins. So let me kind of explain Ooh. a little bit of what's actually happening here. So the cup is a face-down pile of cards that you have. And those are going to be your scoring cards. But as you collect cards from the mountain, which is the middle of the mandala... If you don't already have that card face up in your river, you have to put it at the lowest point value in the river. So it goes one through six. So you have six spots. There's six colors, right? You have six spots, one through six, and then you've got your face down cup. So the game ends when somebody puts their sixth color face up. Okay. So you're trying to get cards into your river, but if you know what cards are in your cup, you don't want those cards in your river early because that's going to make those cards worth less. Does that make Mm. sense? Yep, 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 yep. So you're kind of rushing to get stuff into your river so you can have a good idea of what different colors are going to be worth what, but you don't want to do it too fast because then the game could end really quickly. So the other thing about this game that is tricky is that there's the mountain and then there's the field, which is the representation of the mandala, right? So your river is your scoring stuff and then there's the mountain and the field. There's your field this mountain, and then there's your opponent's field. You cannot have the same color in two of those places, whatever those things are. So if your opponent has purple in their field, it can never be in the mountain, nor can it be in your field until that mandala scores and you start playing it again. Interesting. So the way the game works, you can either play a single card into the mountain, which allows you to draw three cards up to a hand size of eight, or you can play any number of cards of the same color into your field. And that's all you can do. Okay. But remember how I said that the game ends when somebody fills their river with all six colors? Mm-hmm. A mandala scores when that mandala has all six colors in it. Mm-hmm. And the way it scores is whoever has more individual cards in their field gets to pick one of the colors from the mountain of that mandala. And then you go back and forth. And put it in their And put cup? it in the river. Or put it in the river. Put it in the river. So if there's a color that's already represented, it just goes directly into the cup face down. If a color is not represented, but you pull more than one of them, the first one would 
go onto the blank spot. Would go in the river. river okay, the that makes value, sense. And then yep. the rest goes into your yep, cup. Yep. Right. So this gets really interesting because maybe you play a bunch into a mandala, but the other player has no opportunity to put anything in the field for that. Well, they don't get to just take cards from the mountain. Those cards that they would normally take get discarded. So it's not like the player who wins, if the other player doesn't have anything, gets to just take everything from the mountain. So mm. there's always a really interesting back and forth with this game. Sometimes there's a lot of focus on one mandala. Sometimes you're splitting between the two of them. It's really interesting. We played a couple of times last night. That sounds really cool. Yeah, it's very pretty. I mean, you know, mandalas are these kind of pretty circular designs. They're a sand design yeah, usually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's really nice. It's a pleasant game. It's definitely a, a tactical abstract style game. And it plays super quick, like 10, 15 minutes tops. Cool. Mm -hmm. That is mandala. Well, I'm going to talk... Once again, about Avant Card. <laughs> it's really good. That's a good it's reason. It's really good. It is coming to Kickstarter next week. And if all goes according to plan, my review of it, preview of it, whatever, uh, will be up on the website when this podcast comes out. Mm -hmm. Yep. We'll make sure that happens. I'll add to that. How's that? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I really like the simplicity of Avant Card. And it feels, I mean, it's very obviously a deck building game. But it feels way more streamlined than a lot of other deck building games that I've played in the past. And I really, really like that. I am finding that it is very different strategy involved playing at two or three players versus playing at more like four or five. Because when you're playing at four or five players, decks can run out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so you really think a lot harder about well, I really want this number for the power it does, but I don't like the color that is currently available for sale. Maybe I should just buy it anyway, because if I try to wait around, I might not get that number at all. This is going to be a really compact card game. It should be pretty inexpensive. It's got this really cool unfolding deck box that is going to make cleanup super easy and also setup. Setup is super easy, and I love that. The artwork on it is cool. It's a totally approachable family game. And if you want to know more, you should go read about it on our website. And in about a week or so, uh, mid-July, you should go check out the Kickstarter. All right. Sounds great. Yeah, that game. Mm, so good. So good. Two beautiful games that we've been talking about already. Yes. Well, I'll give another momentous update on our Pandemic Legacy Season Zero campaign. We are now into the month of December. Ooh. We are desperately trying to save the world. Some very uh, shocking stuff happened in the month of November. We as a group are extremely adequate. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we haven't lost a month. I don't think we've lost a month or maybe we've lost a month once, but we never crush it. We're never like, we really killed it this time around. Sure, so sure. On the plus side, it makes it not get a lot harder. Sure. <laughs> so hopefully we'll, you know, really hit it out of the park at the very end. I have no idea, but that's where we're at. Okay. And honestly, I, I mean, it's Pandemic Legacy. I think people know about it. So season zero is a little bit different because you are both fighting a disease and also you're fighting the Soviet Union at the same time. So it's almost like a combination of pandemic and kind of like risk-ish I, I don't know but not really it's not like risk at all it's like i don't want to call people diseases but it's like you're <laughs> fighting two pandemics one pandemic of war and one pandemic of disease okay yeah. sure yeah. we've been playing another cooperative game as well uh we continue to play more of miller zoo i finally tried it solo which was fine 
<laughs> I definitely like Miller Zoo more at three or four or five players than at two. It is fine at two players. We did finally fail a challenge, though. Asher and I played one of the challenges, one of the extra challenges, not a progress through the stuff challenge. Mm -hmm. One of the extra challenges that says, complete this scenario, do not talk to each other the entire game. And uh, we lost. We, we almost made it work, but not quite. And we lost. Interestingly enough, we found out that there is a certain set of abilities, they call them tools, that you can only use when you lose a game. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Oh. <laughs> it's like, oh, hey, we finally unlocked the last content for the game by losing. Okay, cool. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. I really like the setup for this. If you've listened to us talk in the past about Zombie Kids Evolution, but you just, you really don't want to do zombies, there are all kinds of reasons to not want to do zombies, and that's fine. Miller Zoo has all of the other elements from Zombie Kids Evolution that we've really, really enjoyed. It's got that legacy aspect. You're putting stickers on the back of the board and on the cards, and you're upgrading things and you're changing things, and the way you play just changes a little bit game to game. It's not a campaign. It's not really a storyline at all. It's just a oh, you've beaten this kind of challenge, now you can do this kind of challenge. It opens up new animals and new ways to play. I think it's great, and it still really makes me want to go visit this zoo in Quebec. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I do agree with you, though. I, I mean, this game has that zombie kids kind of uh, feeling to it. I really understand why our kids glommed onto those games so yeah. much, because even though I will say kind of want to get more out of the envelope part of this and to hear you say like there is nothing left to unlock in the game in that way is a little disappointing that's not entirely true there is there is one envelope left in the progression okay okay that we haven't done yet yeah i don't recall is there like a list of achievements as well or like different ways to play certain scenarios because i know that was a big thing with zombie kids so that's part of the optional challenges Okay. is trying all of these other ways. Like you have to have this one particular character use their power twice in a round or do it in this specific way or have this character give something to this character so they can then do this. Um, so it's all these different combinations of how to use things or bringing in extra animals beyond what would normally be called for in a scenario. Every one of these challenges is a little bit different from the others. And that's really cool especially because all of these are the optional challenges. You don't have to do a specific one to move on to the next one. Okay. All right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's presented a little bit differently than the way it's presented in Zombie Kids. You kind of have this idea that you're moving through it, and when you're done, you've done all of the things, which I suppose is also the case with achievements in Zombie Kids. You do all the achievements, and you're kind of done. Or even Calico has the same yeah. kind of an achievement system to it. But it feels a little bit different because the way they have the stickers on the back of the board makes you feel almost like you're kind of walking this path. Right? Yeah, they definitely set it up like a path. I'm not sure how I feel about that. I heard someone else recently talking about playing this as a traditional gamer, not playing it with kids. And they were a little frustrated that it took until like the fifth game of walking through this path until you got to the point where it's like, oh... There's some real challenge gamery stuff here because it's been slowly building on itself through all of those steps. 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that the first few scenarios are pretty straightforward and easy. But I also wonder, like, if the target market for this game is not necessarily gamer gamers. Right. I mean, I think this is 100% a family game with a legacy element. And I think it's great, frankly, that it steps you into putting more and more challenge into the game slowly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't disagree with you at all. I think that's 100% true. It made it a little bit harder for this game to keep our kids interested because we have been handily winning most of the time. And that is the balance you want to make. Like, if you win every time, a cooperative game gets less interesting. Yep. Yeah, and that's one of the things I've always appreciated about development of a cooperative game because you have to have enough challenge that it doesn't get stale, but not too much challenge so that it's not too punishing. It's an interesting balance to kind of find that right spot in the middle. And this is why not not every cooperative game is going to work for every person or every group who likes cooperative games because there's different levels of skill there. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. All right, let's limit it to two games because we have the monthly report to do. We have yeah. our special announcement. We have to welcome our new community members. And we have this big old topic with lots and lots of feedback that we got to talk about as well. That's true. Uh, we are going to talk about power failure in the break. And we mm -hmm. played that a bunch this week, too. Yes. So we're going to talk about June, huh? Uh, yes, it's time for the June oh, monthly report. My goodness gracious. I'm going to say, first of all, that on the 8th of July, which is when we are recording this show, I have two thirds of what I played in the month of June. Who, buddy? Yeah. So in June, I played 19 games. Okay. Uh, 11 unique. I played unpublished prototypes six times, which actually is probably half and half avant card and, and your game. My game. Yeah. So I'm going to say that my, I guess my H index would still be two, but I'd have, you know, a three, a three, and a two. So I've got my game, I've got Avant-Card, and then Dice Hunters of Therion, I played twice. Also, Jekyllverse Hyde and Miller Zoo, I played twice. Everything else I played once. This is a very depressing month. Oh my gosh. It was not depressing for me. <laughs> Sorry, I guess. Well, um, I also traveled for work. Like, I was gone yeah, for almost the whole week. There was a lot of stuff going on in mm -hmm. June for you, and there was significantly less stuff going on in June for me. Also, more time with Children Home and... One of the things I like to do when the kids are home is get them to play more games with me. So yeah, we did that. I feel like I'm going to be just exceptionally embarrassed for the entire summer. Uh, maybe. Okay. I played a game 40 times. I played 24 unique games in the month of June, which, you know, I didn't meet my May standard where I played a different game for every day. But, but you still had 40 games But played, I still played 40 times. Which yeah. is pretty respectable. Yeah. My H index was three, mm -hmm. and much like you, there are a lot of games that I played three times. I played Dice Hunters of Therion, I played Avant Card, I played Miller Zoo, I played Stamp Farm, and I played Grove. All of those I played at least three times. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to a better July, although even July I'm going to be gone for a bunch of time. I'm going to take a bunch of two-player games because it's just going to be me and Claire. You should take uh, one or two games that you enjoy playing solo as well. Oh, boy. You know what I could do? I could take Merchants of you Magic. You should take Merchants of Magic because Claire <laughs> loves it and you enjoy playing it solo. All right. It will fit the bill. All right. Perfect. Great. So we're going to do that. You're going to play that like 10 times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that is our monthly report. Yours better than mine once again. Hey, I played 13 of my 19 games with you. Aw. <laughs> All right. 
What do you want to do? Big announcement or welcome the community members? I think we should do our big announcement. Okay. All right. I, we've been burying the lead on this for a while. So, you know, as everybody knows, we've been doing this for a while, 350 episodes, about eight years of shows. So, you know, we, we lost 50 in that eight years. Most of those yeah, were, were spread out amongst the first two years mm-hmm. of doing the show. Yep, yeah. Yep. Uh, but the truth is that our kids are getting older and it's hard to continue to do all of the stuff that we do, releasing a written review on Monday and a video review on Friday and also an audio podcast every Monday. It's just really hard. And what we've always wanted to do as the family gamers, and we've talked about this in a lot of places and in a lot of ways, is make sure that what we're doing is we're putting out content on a cadence that we can support and maintain because we want people to know when stuff's coming. We want people to be able to expect content and then get it, right? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And and sometimes we miss, sometimes we we just can't get it together to release or one of one of the two reviews or every once in a while we'll miss a, a podcast, you know, things like that. We've planned a bunch of stuff out in advance so that, you know, next week even though I'll be in another state, we'll still have a show and blah blah blah. So we do the best that we can, but sometimes it ends up being really, really difficult. And so we took a hard look. 350 is kind of a milestone kind of a, a thing. And and we said, look, what do you, what do we want to do? And we've been talking about this in each year for months. Yeah. In addition to getting busier, our kids are getting older and it's getting harder to talk about playing games with little kids when there are no little kids anymore. Yeah, we have to borrow children. Sometimes. I have to borrow little children, <laughs> which is still fine. I mean, we you know can perform babysitting for free because that helps <laughs> us too. But, but yeah. So you know, I mean, listen, we've put a lot of things on the table. We've talked about ending everything. We've talked about merging. We've talked about a lot of different things. And what we've decided to do for, for now. now is that the show is just going to become a biweekly show. We're still going to have guests on on our odd numbered shows. But instead of having an hour of the Family Gamers in your ears every week, it's going to be every other week for a while. You know, we certainly would love to hear your thoughts on that. If it's earth-shattering news for you, if you're just relieved that we're still going to be around at all, whatever those things might be, obviously, you know, the community continues to grow. We're getting tons and tons of great feedback on Mm -hmm, social mm -hmm. media. We joined Threads this week, (laughs) and we're having a lot of great conversations in there. So. Things are still growing in a lot of ways, but there's something that, that's got to give somewhere. And for us right now, it's going to be the podcast. Yeah. We also took a long, hard look at where we will save the most energy, I mm-hmm. guess, is mm-hmm. the best way to put sure. it. And recording the podcast is one struggle and editing the podcast is a second struggle. And so spacing that out a little bit is going to make our lives easier. And we don't want to stop doing the podcast. We really like doing this. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's our big news. And you know what? I mean, we even we talked to our sponsor because obviously that was a big part of this as well. And they're totally on board and we're working together and solving all those problems. So we really did spend a lot of time thinking about this and really working through it. And you know, we didn't really solicit a whole lot of opinions outside of a, a select few. But I, I think this is the right thing for us. And it still provides us the opportunity to put out family focused reviews it's not necessarily little kid games but it's definitely reviews that focus on the dynamics of playing a given game with a family yeah i will say that uh in the meantime you will be able to hear us fairly soon on an episode of the game schooler podcast that is true and 
if you like an hour plus of meandering about family board games, they are a great choice. <laughs> so you can add them into your podcast listening. Yeah. Yeah. So go add the game schoolers. They'll pick up the slack for us. <laughs> they totally will. Um, yeah. So we hope that this is not too disappointing for you, but we wanted to make sure that we can keep doing what we love. We can keep helping all of you and we won't burn out this way. Right. Yeah. That's a big part of it for us. You know, we've been around long enough that we've seen a lot of people come and you shine really, really, really bright and then vanish. And then disappear. Yeah. yeah. And we don't want that to be us. So this is what we got to do. All right. Whew. Got through it. Made it. Okay. Let's welcome some new community members, shall we? Yeah, let's do that. All right. You want to start? We have a huge number. Yeah. It's like double normal. It might be even more than that. Yeah. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lisa. Welcome to Mez. Welcome to Angela. Welcome to Laura. Welcome to Greg. Welcome to Rick. And Sean. Welcome to Joan. And Romaine. Welcome to Jam. And Ben. And Kevin. And Dan. And Edmund. Welcome to Timothy. Welcome to Jonathan. And welcome to Joe. So there are 17 more people that have joined the Family Gamers community. You should definitely head over to this. Is this a minion thing? Yep, it's a minion thing. Head over to the Family Gamers community on Facebook. See some minions and say hello. That was a lot. Let's uh, take a quick break and... Uh past Andrew and Anitra can tell everybody about power failure. <laughs> Have you got the power? We've got the power. You've got the power. We'll be right back. I really wanted to start this review with a He-Man like, I've got the power, but you said we couldn't because I'm a failure. You're not a failure. This game has a failure. A power failure, specifically. Ah. This is a snap review for Power Failure. Power Failure is a card game about power generation and pollution designed by Tao Tao Chen, Yenlin Chen, Yu Zuan Tzu, and Anki Zeng. And it's published by Artana. Two to four people can play it in about 45 minutes. The box says it's best for ages 14 and up. So let's talk about the art in Power Failure. Sure, let's do that. So the art in Power Failure is simple but effective. It features flat 2D representations of power plants and fuel types, along with cubes for tracking actions on a very basic player mat card. There are also cards representing cities that you can provide power to. I love that each one is drawn encased in a light bulb. These cities also represent your points, but we'll get to that. There's also a large number of these black hexagonal carbon blocks. What are those things for? Oh, well, those are actually really important to the game. Why don't we talk about the mechanics and how we play Power Failure? In Power Failure, your goal is to build the best energy empire by providing the most power to cities. Everyone starts the game with five action cards in their hand, and you start with a carbon tower by stacking three carbon blocks in the middle of the table. On your turn, you must take exactly three actions, which you'll track with these little action cubes on your player mat. You may take an action card, play an action card, or activate one type of power plant with each of those actions. Taking an action card is exactly what it sounds like. Take a card from the supply. 
You can do this up to three times, but the supply is not refilled until the end of your turn. And if you have six or more cards in your hand, you need to add a carbon block to the carbon tower. More on that in a second. Playing an action card is another option. If the card you play is an event, you get that card's bonus for the rest of your turn. To power plant, you build the plant by immediately adding a block to the carbon tower. There it is again. The tower collapses while you add the block, turn the power plant to your hand, and end your turn. Your third option for actions is to activate one type of power plant, coal, gas, or nuclear. You pay the specified cost by discarding cards and stacking carbon blocks. You can activate more than one plant as a single action as long as you pay the cost per card. We mentioned the carbon tower, and this is a good time to talk about what happens when the tower falls. Anytime the carbon tower falls, the current player's turn ends immediately, even if they haven't completed three actions yet. Then everyone has to discard an action card from their hand. Create a new carbon tower that's exactly three units tall and move on to the next player's turn. Speaking of turns, let's get back to those turns. If the tower didn't fall and you produced enough energy to meet the requirement indicated on one or more city cards, take them into your scoring pile. Unspent energy does not carry over to future turns. Entropy! When the city supply runs out when filling the face-up cards, every player other than the one who just went gets one more turn. Then, whoever has the most points on their city cards wins. I have the power! I knew you were going to get that in here somewhere. Yes! But what did we expect from Power Grid? I had heard great things about this game from our friends at the Game Schooler podcast. And when I first opened the box, it looked kind of like a stripped-down version of Power Grid by Friedman Freeze, which I've enjoyed in the past. There are a lot of similarities with Power Grid, for sure. You're balancing power generation with pollution generation, and I could tell there was going to be, in this case, a kind of tension with this dexterity around the shared carbon tower. It felt like it was going to be lighter than Power Grid, I but mean, yeah. that shouldn't be that much of a surprise. <laughs> the action cubes and the little card player mats, they didn't excite me at all. That part looked kind of boring. But there were some surprises. What surprised us about Power Failure? My biggest surprise was the way this game combines a fairly traditional hand management point collecting kind of game with that dexterity element. Fueling a coal power plant is easy. It just requires one card. But it's risky because you have to stack three more blocks on the carbon tower. I also really loved that there were various kinds of green power plants in the game, which don't require any activation. But all of them only generate a small amount of energy. And the wind and solar power plant output is variable. Each one might generate two power on a turn, or one, or even nothing. Sometimes the mechanics of a game tied to its theme hit me in a particular way, whether that's positive or negative. And Power Failure actually did a decent job of reminding me that we're all connected. Here it's power and pollution, but that's not the only place. The actions of other people affect us and <laughs> vice versa. I actually like that the game reminded me of that with this really smart carbon tower dexterity mechanic. That's why real world themes are good sometimes. And it helps that the game is fun to play. It's <laughs> fairly quick to boot, actually. So, Anitra, do we recommend Power Failure? Power Failure is a great family game. Although the box says ages 14 and up, we'd recommend it for ages 10 and up or so. I totally agree with that. Mechanically, this game 
is even simpler and could go younger in age, but you really need fine motor skills for that carbon tower. So I think 10 is about the right age. Yeah, you could have a lot of frustration if you're constantly trying to do risky actions that require you to stack more things on the carbon tower. There's a balance here of going for points, but not going for broke and waiting for the right time when you're likely to succeed. So what are we going to rate power failure from Artana? I think we're going to rate it for power plants out of five. And that's power failure in in a a snap. snap. We're back. Hello. Yes, we are back. We are going to talk about a topic that doesn't have a right answer. I mean, it does, but it doesn't. Yeah, we're going to talk about, uh, shall we say, right-sizing your game collection. So, like, how many games are too many games? And how do you make that decision? Can you put the uh, (laughs) how many cats is too many cats link in the show notes (laughs) to the show? Because... Now I'm just going to think about that. How many games is too many games? There's, There's no, no such, such number. number. <laughs> there is someone who responded to our, uh, I think our Facebook community or no, our threads post yeah. basically, basically saying that like, there's never too many. Yeah. That would be none other than Gaming with Sidekicks, Isaac Via. Probably Isaac. Yeah. The right size for me is never enough. <laughs> but that really gets to the core of this kind of conversation. So what, first of all, what does right-sizing your game collection mean in terms of the size of your collection, in terms of the level of maintenance for your collection, right? Because those are two different Mm -hmm. things Mm -hmm. that different people kind of interact with in different ways. And how do you figure out what is best for you? And best, by the way, is already, you know, a a very (laughs) non-specific personal thing, right? Because what you think is best for you is not the same as what your doctor thinks is best for you. So like when we talk (laughs) about your board game collection, what you think is best for you might not be what your partner thinks is best for you. Yeah, We're going to get very Marie Kondo on this. Yeah. Like like, this (laughs) is your decision Mm -hmm. or more specifically, this is your family's decision because what is best for you should also include a solution that your family does not hate. So I think that you know, at the kind of core of this issue, I think I would make the argument that what is best for you is really what is best for your environment. And when I say that, I mean that there's many, many things that go into what determines the appropriate size of your game collection. And some of those things are more or less significant for different people. So if you have a size restriction in your house or your apartment, but they're that important to you. That's different from someone who doesn't have a size restriction, but their partner doesn't want to see them. And so even though they might have the space for them, they can't store them everywhere. You know what I'm saying? Like there's yeah. more things to it than merely what a person wants, right? There's what a person needs to do. Well, and thinking back to earlier in our family's gaming journey, it's going to look very different when you have really little kids like toddlers who are going to pull games off of shelves and Mm -hmm. open them up. And maybe part of that is you need to have your super important games, the ones that are the most meaningful to you, behind lock and key somehow or protected from your youngest children while also finding a way to have games out there that they can enjoy. Sure. So Anitra, what I want to do is I'm going to ask you a question and I'm going to ask you a question about the question inside the question. (laughs) 
Are you ready? The question inside the question inside the question. Okay. I'm yeah. asking you about the question inside the question. Okay. We're talking about right-sizing your board game collection, but a nuance to that that I think is important to talk about and discuss is what constitutes the board game collection. So give me your thoughts, or if you would, about how do you decide what constitutes our board game collection? Because we've talked about the fact that as our kids have grown, we have less hobby games than we used to, right? Yeah. It's just a reality. So when you think about our collective board game collection, first of all, I'll, I'll be perfectly open and upfront with everybody. We purge a lot of games. We're still probably sitting in the mid 300s. That's just where we are right now. Yeah. I would like it to be in the low 200s, like in a perfect world. But obviously with what we do, <laughs> a lot comes in. It's it's almost hard sometimes to move on from, from anything just in terms of the mechanics of it. But Anitra, talk a little bit about your thoughts when it comes into like what constitutes, not just the number, right? Because I think that when we talk about right sizing, everybody thinks you're talking about a number. and Downsizing. Fact, yeah. A lot <laughs> yeah. of, look, there's a lot of jokes in the industry about calling, but not actually calling her, her, her. This is a thing that we have to grapple with and we've had shows about calling before but i don't i don't want it to just be about the number because i think the number is important but i don't think it's the only part of this whole thing so when you say what constitutes our collection you're not just asking me to describe our collection you're saying like what are the criteria well what i what i'm asking i guess is when what you are the look limitations and you say okay we need to move on from 10 games are you the football team that drafts the best player available, or, or do you select representative okay. games for something, or okay. do you, you know, sure. what's your thought process? Okay, so in talking about that, I definitely think about when we say our game collection, it encompasses all of the board games in our house. Yes. However, those board games fit into three major categories with some overlap. One major category for us, because we are the family gamers and we review 100 games a year, is our review games. I barely count that part of our collection, but we have to have space devoted to it. Sure. These are games in the queue that we are going to review. Once we have reviewed them, they move out of that segment, and that's our first chance to decide, do we really want to keep this game or are we going to move on from it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The other two parts of our collection are broadly categorized as the grown-up games and the kid games. There is a huge amount of overlap here. <laughs> but part of the reason I think about it this way is because that is literally how we have them organized in our house. The quote-unquote grown-up games are down here in your office where we're recording right now. And the quote-unquote kid games are upstairs in our living room. Now, the kid game collection includes things like Dice Throne and Unmatched and Century. <laughs> like, they're not kids' games. They are games that our kids love playing and have some kind of grasp or ownership on. Mm -hmm. When it comes to that, things that fall into that the kids' game category are ones where I know we need to get the kids to buy in if we think that we have too many games and we need to get rid of some. The quote-unquote grown-up games, unless something got moved around for some other reason, Usually when I look at those, I go, you know what? The kids have not asked about these. Like they've probably played it before, but if it's been down here in the office for like two years and they haven't played it in that time, I don't think they're going to care if we move on from it. So it can just be between you and me. Does that kind of start to answer your question? Yeah, of what, I mean, how our board game collection is put together. It's not so much about like 
exactly how we make those decisions, but having those broad categories gives us a framework to start with. And each one of those three categories has its own place to live, so it becomes really obvious when we're running out of room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, what I think you described, which is not really my question, but that's okay, is that environment thing that I talked about. When I said before, like, it's not really just what you want, it's also all of the things that come into play in your environment. Right. So we value our children's opinion and their perspective and their desires when it comes to the board game collection. And so we don't rule by fiat and say, no, you are not, are not allowed to keep this game because we think it's dumb. Right. Well, <laughs> there look. are there are a bunch of those that I'm just like, look, you are going to have to like twist my like <laughs> literally twist my arm, like mm-hmm. have blackmail over me to get me to play some of those games that are in the kids area well we don't talk about that because i had to help them get that blackmail but um (laughs) but but no but but but, i'm not gonna make them get rid of those games because they love them mm -hmm. but i mean there are parents out there who operate under the auspices of like no you have grown past this and you will get rid of this or the marginally like more acceptable i tell you what I'll buy this game from you for $10 and then you'll never see it again. Right? Sure. Like it's worth $10 to me to not ever have to look at that <laughs> in my house. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, so I think what you're really describing is more of that, how we navigate through our environment and how that determines or predetermines some of that board game selection. What I was really looking for was more of just a, like how, if you have a body of games and you are looking to trim by 10%, how do you analyze your games, make that determination? I, this is part oh, okay. Of, this, this is part of right sizing in the sense of when you're done, you have a refined collection, which is more right for you. How do you make those kinds of decisions? That was definitely not what I thought you were no, that's asking. Okay, I mean, I think the environment thing is is a, an important part of the conversation, and that is part of how the decisions get made is is looking at these different categories. For us personally, there are a couple of things we think about. I'm going to start with a really basic one, which I learned years ago when I ran out of rooms for books on my bookshelf, (laughs) which is as soon as I've gone through a book the first time, I kind of ask myself, am I ever going to want to read this again? If the answer is no right away, it is easy to get rid of that book right then. Like put it in the giveaway pile or sell or donate to the library, whatever. See, I already think you're weird for reading books multiple times. Like (laughs) I just... There's I, I, I a very I know. small number of books it's that fine. I can do that with. Very small. And, and I get that. But that's very much a me thing. Sure. But that's my first criteria. And so that's kind of what we do with the review games. Like we finish reviewing a game and we look and we're like, is this something that I really want to play more? Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that getting rid of it, that it's a bad game, but just like I've played enough of this game. I would not be sad if I never played this game again. So is that your first question? Yeah. I think that is really my where I start. Because mm-hmm. that's not my first question. There is a mitigating factor on that, which is there are a few books in my on my bookshelf, games in our game collection, where I look and I'm like, ah, I don't know that I really would spend the time to do this again, but I have such great memories wrapped up in it that I can't bear to part with it. Or... I don't need the space badly enough right now to say right. goodbye to those memories. Right. And it is tied up with, uh, especially with board games, if it's a small game, it's way easier to say, you know, we can spare the space for this. Mm. So I have two things. I don't want to lose either one. So I'm going to I'm gonna throw them Go both ahead. in here now. So my first question is, what are the constitutional parts of this game that make me want to play it? 
And do I have another game in my collection that does those things better? For me, it's less about a particular game or, and whether or not I would go back to that particular game again. It's kind of the flip side of the same coin, which is if I want to play a game that does X, is this the one that I would grab? Does that sure, make sense? Sure. Well, and I'm starting from a place of the really easy cut is basically, am I sick of this game? <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And given that in order for us to review a game, we have to play it a minimum of three times with varying player counts or some kinds of variants or whatever. That's kind of our, our general baseline rule. We've probably played it three times in a period of a couple of weeks. And so, you know, three, four, gonna... five, <laughs> yeah, seven right, times. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good one. And the second thing, also, you made a mention about small box games and how it's a lot easier to keep a small box game. This kind of goes into and I'm, I'm going to jump directly into um, some of our, our show feedback or, or question feedback, feedback yeah. about this from Harm Wiggins on threads. We have a small place and jobs meaning that they may not change to a great extent. They're teachers. So we have 150-ish games. But then they said, we do all the tricks, expansions in base box, small box versions of games like Azul and Hive, etc. And that kind of got me thinking about the fact that we do the same thing. You know, I'm I'm keen on expansions if I can get them in the base box. <laughs> and less keen on them otherwise. Right, yeah. right. My sister has a 3D printer and um, she has put together, I, I usually find the inserts for her to 3D print and then she prints them for me the insert for baron park to get bad news bears in that box that is an impressive piece of engineering I, yes yes it very, is. very very impressive uh, to be able to do that but you know you think about things like button try games and all this stuff even things like quit the quiver right mm-hmm. which is like a, a much nicer case than the way that we hold our games it's way nicer all my button try games live in a lunchbox yeah but <laughs> then then when you get into that whole conversation about like do you keep the expansion boxes for games you oh, know, yeah. in a closet somewhere, mm-hmm. that whole thing? And so, you know, I really started thinking about like those things, those folio things you can buy at like Michael's or whatever yep. that people have, you know, started doing. And they, they rip put, like, games down into a really small and, yeah, thing. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 And so that's another way that you can do this if this issue is about space. This issue is not always about space or not solely about space. Yeah, yeah right. So for us, like that space thing is something that definitely comes up. And I, I wanted to mention what Harm Wiggins had said, because I thought that that was a really important thing that we should talk about. Mm-hmm. Right sizing very often is I have space constraints, not my number is 200, even though that's kind of how we talk about it a lot of the time. Yeah. It's not that. It's this is the space that I have. But anyway, getting back to what you were talking about with how you make your decisions. Yeah. So... I do think about the same thing that you've mentioned of, hey, what is the big thing that attracts me to this particular game? Is there another game that we already have that attracts me more that same way or does that thing better? Mm. Sometimes we still keep multiple games that do similar things because there's something different about the way they do it. But we try not to do a lot of that. We try. Yeah. I mean, we just put voltage in our cull pile, which I was genuinely surprised by. But all the various things that it does, we have games that do it slightly better. And when yeah. when I took that very kind of logical, cold, calculating look at it, I was like, you know what? That's true. So yeah, we're going to have to do that. Yeah. And once again, it doesn't mean that voltage is a bad game or that we wouldn't certainly be willing to play it. But there are other games that we're going to pick over that on a regular basis if we're looking for that kind of back and forth play with Mm -hmm. two players. 
So the other thing that comes into play here, besides space, besides do I have another game that does this better, is literally just have I played this game recently? And recently is totally up to the definition of the person asking this question of themselves. I'm not even going to name which ones they are, but we have games on the shelf right now that we say we love and we have not played in two, three, four years. It might be time to move on from those. Part of this is recognizing your family's way of playing, what actually makes it to the table in your house, but also what other ways that your family has access to games. Some people only have the games they can buy and can live in their house, and that is it, and they pretty much just play with their family and a couple of friends, and that's all they're ever going to have access to. Then you don't have to think about this aspect of the question. But most people who are listening to this podcast have access through a local library or a gaming group with other friends who like to play similar stuff. And, you know, you've played regularly enough that you know, in our case, we have really good friends who love Ticket to Ride, have all of the Ticket to Ride. All of it. We don't need to have Ticket to Ride. Because if we want to play it, we're going to go play it with them. We have Ticket to Ride New York just in case we need a quick fix. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we used to have Ticket to Ride and we don't anymore because we don't need to have it. Mm -hmm. We have access to it in other ways. And that actually, interesting, you know, I was out with a friend last night. We talked about Mandala, first half of the show. I was mm -hmm. playing with him. And this is actually a conversation that came up. Because I have sold games to him or to people in his playgroup simply because I knew that I would never play them again. So it really comes into the decision making on whether or not to bring a game into your collection. But it's kind of the same decision on whether or not to keep a game, right? So yeah. Zolkin, I've talked about Zolkin on the show a bunch mm -hmm. of times. I love that game. And it's not going to get played in this house. Yeah. So it's not going to get played. That is a game I moved on from. Although we did pick up Gutenberg on a big sale. Speaking yes. of games of gears. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Look, we reviewed Gutenberg on, on the Family Gears website, but it was reviewed by actually the guy that I was hanging out with last night. And so he's got the copy of the game and we didn't have it and it was killing me, but I got a good deal. So anyway. Honestly, this is part of right-sizing the collection though. It's not just about getting rid of games. It's also about what happens when you bring in a new game. Because in our case, we agonized over... We loved Gutenberg. We don't know if we can get together with this friend often enough to play it like we would like to. So, yeah, we're bringing Gutenberg into our house. We're probably going to find another game that can leave to make some room on the shelf for it. Well, we've been, I mean, this has been on the mind for a while because yeah. we've been re-going through everything. Yeah. But, you know, what I really wanted to say with that was, as I was having this conversation yesterday... Dave had said, look, when I see a game that I like, I have a conversation with Eric. Eric is a guy that's in his game group. We talk about who would rather have that game in their house because we know that we're going to play it together. Mm, mm -hmm. So he buys half as many games as he might buy otherwise because Eric buys the other half of them. Yeah. And so that conversation doesn't have to be, am I going to play this with a game group or like, how is that all going to work out? You literally can make that decision with somebody who isn't in your home, but is part of your gaming sphere of influence. Yeah. An opportunity that we have that I know not everyone has is that we have some conventions that we really like to go to. And at least one of them is really just about playing games, not about all of the media stuff that we do at the big ones. Mm hmm. 
The two of us can ask ourselves sometimes, like you with Tolkien, I'm never going to play this with my family. And it's going to be hard for me to find people right around in the area to play with. But if I see this at a convention, I am going to jump on it and play it with whoever is there and willing to play it with me. And that is enough, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is a solution for some of those games where you're just like, oh, man, I love this game, but I'm never going to be able to play it. That is what gaming conventions are for, is finding other people who love playing that game, whatever that game is for you. Mm -hmm. So I have a couple more pieces of feedback. One of them that I really resonate with, Jellyfish Game Studios, again, on Threads. I have this goal to only keep 100 board games, but thus far I have been unsuccessful. (laughs) (laughs) I feel that. I find I hover around the 180 to 200 range. Yes, my actual number is twice my goal. That also feels about (laughs) that that also feels about right depending on how aggressively i am calling at this time so it's jellyfish game studios on threads on the facebook community annabelle said how did you know i just spent the evening calling my collection (laughs) but she works at a library and says can i access this physical copy through a friend or through my local library since her library circulates games if it's something that i love but doesn't get played in my household it was called today Good for you, Annabelle. Stephanie and I said something similar, which is we only keep games we love. We've gotten better at choosing games that work for us. But if there's a game, even if we know it's a great game, if there's a game that isn't getting played, it's gone. And I think this is one of the hardest things to wrap your mind around as you decide, okay, we need to get rid of games. We have too many. We have to get rid of some somehow. Getting rid of a game, moving on from a game, whether that's giving it to a friend, donating it to a library selling it at a convention, whatever, however you're getting rid of it. You're not doing it because it's a bad game. You're not even doing it because it's, uh, this game is just okay. It might be a great game, but if you're not playing it, it's not a great game for your situation. But it's probably a great game for somebody else. So think about how you can spread the love of gaming and get this game into the hands of someone who is going to love it. Yeah, I mean, we had a lot of feedback that really kind of echoes that idea. I'm currently at 190 games. I'd like to get 250. I've sold some and have a one-in-one-out policy at the moment. My issue is that I like everything I currently have, but I know that I'm going to want new games. How to do that and still get down to 150? Tough decisions will need to be made. They're not easy decisions. And moving on from a good game doesn't make it less of a good game. That was Butler Sox 20. Once again, on Threads. Our friend Doug Kotecki responded to this as well. I love the way he put this. His tip for right-sizing is take the hypotheticals out of the equation. So you're not going to say, my kids will like this someday. Or if my aunt and my best friend ever come over at the same time, they'll love this game. Getting increasingly ridiculous. If my friend from college who I haven't seen in 15 years, if he comes over, we're going to play this. It's going to be awesome. Basically, anytime you find yourself saying this game would be perfect in a scenario that might never actually happen, you probably shouldn't be hanging on to it. He said, I've removed so many games from my collection when I honestly evaluated when and how games would actually get to the table. It is hard, though, because sometimes those hypotheticals in and of themselves become sentimental. Like this would be the perfect game for me to play with my aunt or my grandmother, whoever that special person is in your life. And you build it up in your mind of how you're going to do it. I'm going to challenge you. If this sounds familiar to you, figure out how you are going to get together with that person and play the game or get rid of the game. 
it's going to be hard and you're going to feel better when you're done. So one of the things we do in this kind of a situation where we look at games and we're like, we got to get this to the table is we'll pull those games off the shelf and put them in a really annoying place. (laughs) (laughs) It's the one more time pile. Yep. It's the one more time pile and we play it and then we make the decision again. Because then it's almost like, am I putting this into my collection? Yeah, it feels more like, am I putting it in yeah. rather than, am I ready to move on from mm-hmm. it? Trash Talk, <laughs> which is a great handle, once again on threads. I like our collection. This is, Anitra, some of what you were talking about. It has changed and evolved since 10 years ago when it started, which is something that we talked about. Mm-hmm. We have just shy of 200 games. We call games regularly and only keep games we want to play. The right size collection is different for different people. If gaming is how you spend all or most of your free time and you have the space, I imagine a larger collection. As for us, we play often but not daily, so we try to keep the collection manageable. Yeah, that want to play is a loaded term Mm -hmm. there, but a lot of this is about evaluating what I want to play this game really truly means for you and your family. It actually leads me into uh, somebody else on the Game Schooler Discord who responded to this told me that they had been tracking their plays on BG stats for a while and it helped them notice what games just weren't getting played. They used it a few months ago to move on from every game they had without a solo mode that hadn't been played in the quote is a long time. I'm sure this person decided, you know, it was a year or something. That like is that. so stressful. Like I, I'm stressed out thinking about what that would do to me. But also, that's a person who probably is not in our situation. This person says when they sat down and looked at their list, they started by making a list. Games that don't have a solo mode hadn't been played in whatever the time period was. When they looked at the list, then they thought about why they weren't playing those games. COVID was part of the reason, but only a very small part. Okay, so there you go. So that says something about the period of time. Yeah. The biggest issue was that uh, their game group had tastes that just didn't align with a bunch of these games. Yeah. So encouragement to this person who I'll keep anonymous. Again, this is what I think conventions are great for. You look at it, you say, I am not going to play this game by myself. I am not going to play it with my game group. Getting rid of it doesn't mean I'm never going to get the chance to play this game again. It just means that I have to seek out the chance to play it in a slightly different way rather than having it sit on the shelf and be like, me be like, oh, it would be so great to play that game if only I could find some people to play with. So we have to ask ourselves the question, right? Because we, we talk about right-sizing, but we have not... I mean, we mentioned Gutenberg, but not once has someone in talking about right-sizing said, man, I need to buy more games. Like, we say that generally, but like when talking about considering your board game collection, nobody's like, man, I don't have enough. I should go get more. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't happen. So the question is, how does it get this way? What happens that we end up in a situation where we've got all this stuff and we're like, wow, I'm turning into a hoarder? Well, I mean, I think it's the same way anybody else does, but it's wanting something new and shiny, seeing other people talk about it. Now I feel guilty because I know we add to this by doing reviews, Mm. but we do try very hard to say who's going to like a game and who it's good for and hopefully give you a better idea of what you would like and dislike about any particular game. But you see a game out there enough and maybe you get a chance to play it once and you're like, oh man, I want to play this a bunch more times. And then you bring it home and the bloom is kind of off the rose as it were like oh well i love this game but the theme isn't interesting to my kids or i thought i was gonna love this game and we just can't get it to the table or 
I've never even played this game and it looks really cool. And somehow every time we reach for a game, we reach for something else. Do you think if we invented some kind of a little device that just sprayed a little bit of new car smell when you opened a board game <laughs> box, do you think that would like so? Could we do that? Is that a million dollar idea? I don't think that would help. Although you could talk to Flip Flory about that. I bet, <laughs> I bet he's thinking about that. Yeah, that's a, that's a, I forgot about that. <laughs> I mean, for me, my perspective on this really is that our expectations don't match reality. And it's not necessarily about, you know, as you said, the bloom falling off the rose, although I think that's part of it. But, you know, when you're in a store and you look at a game, you think, man, this game is going to be so fun for this situation. Yeah. And it's almost like the same kind of things that timeshare people are trying to put through your heads, <laughs> right? Of like, think of all the great yep. vacations that you're going to be able to have with your family. If you've got a timeshare, you don't have to worry about booking a hotel. You don't have to worry about doing all it's, these things. It's what Doug was saying. All these hypothetical situations of like, oh man, this is going to be so great to play with my second cousin. <laughs> right. But it, it's wrapped up in a non-specific emotion about what that could be. So it, could just be as simple as this is a great game to play as a group of people and in the back of your mind you miss hanging out with people you know it's it's yeah. like yeah it's like when you're like man i am craving carbs right now right because you have a specific carb deficiency if you have a deficiency for these kinds of things which we all do let's face it mm. in the 2023 in the united states which is where most of our listeners are from there's a whole lot less happiness <laughs> these days at the macro level and we're all looking for these things and we all have uh, some deficiency of these things in our lives and holding a board game in our hands in the store makes us recall some other time that we had that was actually Fun. exactly that thing that we're Fun. missing <laughs> and we create these expectations of what could possibly happen in our heads and it doesn't match reality this time it's going to be different yeah yeah totally 100 percent yeah, we don't like to face up to the fact that we tend to fool ourselves in this area. This is not just board games, but we're talking about board games today. Speaking for myself, having bought Gutenberg and even getting at least one of our kids interested in it is not going to help me to not be tired when that kid is going, hey, do you want to play a board game? And I'm just like, I've done so many things today. I'm so tired. If we play a board game, it has to be something 30 minutes or less that I already know how to play. Mm. Like, it's not going to fix that problem. I can fix that problem other ways, but it feels so much easier bringing a new board game into the house. Be like, this is going to do it. Sure. No, I totally understand that. <laughs> I totally agree with that. You know, the other thing about this, and this is a little bit of a pivot, but I think it's absolutely true. And we saw this in some of our feedback. This is from Jay Evans FP, once again on Threads. I've realized over the last few years that collecting games and playing games are two different hobbies. Yes. I own too many games that I have not yet actually played. Most of those I do actually hope to play someday. I sold a large game bag of games for the Origins Flea Market this year. I have a large but limited amount of storage space, and this will ultimately dictate the size of my collection. This is buttressed by One Day I'll Play, which is an ironic name given uh, the topic. Yes. Who says... I'm at about 130 games, not including expansions. I think at this point, I've basically become a collector. I don't mind that, though. Board games in general bring me joy, whether I'm playing them or buying them. I think with what I've got coming via crowdfunding this year, I'm at a place where I'm happy with my collection. I don't think there is a right size. It all depends on how it makes you feel. And I think that last part is true. And he brings up crowdfunding, and I want to part crowdfunding because I do want to talk about crowdfunding as well. 
But this whole idea of a collector, I'm not really much of a collector. I don't like the idea of just having a bunch of crap. It just, it works for some people. It doesn't work for other people. I mean, I've got a lot of Zelda paraphernalia, but I don't really consider that collector stuff. It's all stuff that I look at and it's, it's mostly art and like one or two statues or whatever. But I don't consider that a collector. A collector is someone who buys things for the sake of having them. Most of the stuff was actually given to me. But anyway, I digress. I think we fool ourselves with board games as a collection piece because it's functional. Yeah, it reminds me of people who build up big closets full of clothes, women usually, like in a bunch of different sizes. And they're like, oh, because, you know, my weight goes back and forth. And so when I'm small, I can wear these. And when I'm a little bit bigger, I can wear these. And I have this stuff that kind of hides in the back. That's my slobby, I don't feel great clothes. And that works up to a point until you realize that you're still hanging on to clothes that you haven't worn in five years, 10 years, whatever. But having them still makes you feel good in some way. And so I think board games can often do the same thing, that sometimes you just look at it on the shelf and you're like, oh man, when I can play that someday, it's going to be great. Again, I I think that we are definitely sounding very like, you should get rid of a bunch of crap you don't need. (laughs) And I don't really want it to sound that way. Like, this is what's right for you. If you need that in your life, like looking at, to use your example, looking at that LBD and remembering that amazing time you went out to the club or something. Like if that is a thing that you need in your life because things are tough and remembering that time was awesome, fine. Whatever is right for you. Like that's fine. Yeah. But, you know, this is a really interesting conversation to have. And I find it incredibly fascinating that almost the entire conversation is, oh man, I have too much. I need to get rid of some. Because that was never the question. Right. The the question was never how many games do you Mm -hmm. need to get rid of? It was what does right sizing a board game collection look like? And almost everybody responded, I need to get rid of some games. And I just think that's a super interesting thing that we have to deal with. Yeah. This is a good opportunity for me to read one of the few responses that wasn't directly saying, here's how I get rid of games. And that is Don on the Family Gamers community answering the question of what does right-sizing your game collection look like and how does it look different now than it would have a few years ago. And his answer was so much more positive. The collection is growing in complexity as our kids grow. The collection is growing in a number of games. Each kid and parent has their unique preferences. We have a growing discernment in selecting games. We have a growing community to share and play games with. We are buying fewer games and gifting or selling games that don't get played much more quickly than we used to. So I liked that response that it's a different way to look at this same question of as our kids grow, as our situation changes, our collection is changing, not necessarily shrinking or growing. In his case, it's growing, but being okay with that change and being honest with yourself about what that looks like for your family, trying to make it fit your family. And your needs. Mm. Yeah, I love it. So the last thing I I do want to talk about is crowdfunding and what that means. The reason why this crowdfunding thing I think is so problematic is because you don't have that moment when you're standing there in a store holding a game, thinking about what you're bringing it back to. Like, I need to introduce this board game to my collection. Is this board game going to get along with, you know, Lagranha? I don't know, you know, (laughs) whatever. But, but, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, you don't have to make all those decisions at once. And so... All you have to do is deal with the budget part. You're putting off that decision for future you. Not only that, you're kind of making that decision for future you. I've seen people with boxes of Kickstarter games that 
they don't even take the box out of the box because they have no room for it. You or, know what I'm saying? It's or by the time still. Or by the time they get it, you know, they've consumed some more media about it or they've seen it elsewhere and they're like, oh, this is actually not a good game for me. Right. So I don't want to say that I'm anti-crowdfunding. I'm not. Yeah, we we're definitely not anti-crowdfunding. Crowdfund certain things. We're very specific about the things that we choose to crowdfund. But I do think that it really exacerbates this problem a lot because it takes all of the different decision points and separates them so far apart from each other that it's really difficult to look at the big picture all at once. Yeah, and it it's is, really it is, something that I just want to encourage people to be mindful of. Yeah, uh, we have talked about this specifically with some family games in the past. If a game is on crowdfunding and sounds like right now it would be a great fit for your family, try to think about, is this still going to be a great fit for my family a year or two years from now? If I think it is, then then maybe it's still worth it to pull the trigger and fund it and plan on getting it further down the road. But if you're not sure... I don't want to tell you not to crowdfund because that is how a lot of these projects get made at all. But we are always trying to encourage publishers to try to make enough so that you can sell it at retail too and capture stuff later. It's a tough decision because a lot of publishers really do depend on the crowdfund people to put up the cash to make sure the game gets made. So you've got extra feelings tied in there. We're not going to tell you what to do there. Mm. But think very carefully about how it's going to work out for you, your budget, and future you. Is future you going to say, thanks, past me? <laughs> or is future you going to be like, oh, I don't have any room for all this stuff? It's a hard decision, but it's an important one that we have to make. I like making the decisions where it shows up in the mail and I go, ooh, thanks, past me. <laughs> all right. Well, I got one last thing. Keegan Reynolds on Threads says this. This is just a cool cull idea, and I wanted to share it. He says, I have about 15 board game friends, and we all have a Christmas party every year. I pick out about 15 games from my collection each year so I can give them as gifts white elephant style. Helps keep my shelf from overflowing and makes me only keep games I really want to have. Plus, and we said this before, if I want to play something I gave away, all I have to do is call a friend. Yeah. So that's a handy way to move on from some games. As a parting note, I want to remind all of the parents of younger children listening to this podcast, your kids are watching how you treat your games, what mom and dad's toys look like, and they will pick up very quickly if you're being a hypocrite. If your kids need to have their toys picked up or you feel overwhelmed by your kids' toys and you're getting angry about it, but you have board games spilling out of the shelves and onto the floor your kids are going to notice and you can lead by example. Even with a three or four year old, you can talk through with them. Mommy really needs to make space so that every single one of my board games can have a home. So I'm picking out some games to give to somebody else so that someone else can enjoy these games. Maybe when I'm done here, we can go look at some of your toys and you can pick out some toys that somebody else would really enjoy and make space for the new toys you're going to get for your birthday, Christmas, whatever. It makes a huge difference to be open and honest with your kids and show them both where you're falling down and where you're trying to improve as you try to encourage them to improve too. I mean, I think it's very evident as we all have these conversations that clearly we all need work. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Well, that was a lot mm. this week. Mm -hmm. 
I will leave you with Andrew's quote from earlier. The reason this is a struggle is because our expectations don't match reality. And unfortunately, we can't really change reality, but we can change our expectations. Yeah. Do want to say, by the way, thank you to all the people who kind of weighed in and talked about this with us in the community, on Twitter, on threads, wherever else we got stuff, the Discord for the Game Schooler podcast. Love those guys over there and everything that they're doing. Anitra, do you want to talk about all the places that people can get a hold of us if they feel like they missed their shot, <laughs> but they still want to let us know? You can still contribute to this conversation. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Threads, TikTok, and YouTube at Family Gamers AA. AA for Andrew and Anitra. You can also email us. You can email me, Andrew, at thefamilygamers.com. Anitra at thefamilygamers.com. We mentioned the Family Gamers community several times already. We love having discussions there. We do try to have discussions elsewhere, but we are happiest in our Facebook community. <laughs> 600 plus members strong now. Mm -hmm. Come join the conversation there. We will be happy to have you. Anitra mentioned having too many clothes, but uh, we still I think... don't have too many clothes. <laughs> we still think you should head over to our merch site, thefamilygamers.com forward slash merch, and check out our Family Gamers and play games with your kids' merchandise. You can get great t-shirts and hoodies, mugs, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Thefamilygamers.com forward slash merch. I hope the podcast today was helpful to you. Please subscribe if you liked it. Tell your friends about the podcast. And we still appreciate your ratings and reviews. Mm-hmm. You can find us on, I don't know, everywhere that you find <laughs> podcasts. Really, truly everywhere. The Family Gamers is sponsored by First Move Financial once again. Go to firstmovefinancial.com slash familygamers and learn how the team at First Move Financial can help you pile up the victory points. Thanks again to First Move for sponsoring another episode of the show. Well, I think that's plenty for this week. It is. It is. And there's not going to be a show next week because we're moving this to bi-weekly, but... In two weeks, we will be back with a very exciting interview. So until then, everybody, play, play games, games with, with your kids. kids.